Welcome to the Monday edition of Couch Potato Diary. I'm Peter Klein. You downloaded this show. You already know that. Coming up on the program today, the Montreal Canadiens lose one that they could have won. The 76ers lose one that they should have won. And the NCAA loses one that they definitely should have lost. If you want to get in contact with the show, you can do so on Twitter and Instagram. I am at PrimetimeKlein. Twitch.tv slash PrimetimePK. YouTube channel is linked in the show notes but just search Couch Potato Diary or Primetime Klein 1. If you want to email us, I say us, it's me, couchpotatodiary at yahoo.com. The music provided for this show by Wasted Talent. Find them on Instagram at Wasted Talent with X's where the A's would be. You can also find their producer on Instagram at Tommy Fresh music. A very busy Monday, so we are going to get right into it, and we will start with the game that you all were watching last night, and that's the Montreal Canadiens taking on the Vegas Golden Knights, and this one is going to be a very difficult one for Montreal to swallow, and I think if you look back on this series, if Vegas is to win this series, and I still think they will, although uh, the evidence on the ice is not necessarily backing up my claim, um, but if Montreal goes on to lose this series, this is a game that they're going to look back on with deep and great regret, because they were the better team throughout. They had control of the puck, I mean, basically the entire first period, but then after that, Vegas would get a couple stints with it but overall this was a game that Montreal controlled and when you are the team that on paper is the lesser of the two and when you are the underdog going into these and you're at home and you have a 2-1 lead and you have a chance to really take a stranglehold in a game you were better than the other team in you probably should win those games but now the series is tied at two two of the next three are at Vegas they can not they, they don't even have to win again on the road to win this series. And it just felt like last night was Montreal's best chance to get this done. But that does not mean that this is a situation without positives for Montreal. Because like I said, they played a really fucking good hockey game last night. Just the, the amount of control they had over a skilled Vegas team. And it really felt like they were out Vegasing Vegas. Like they they took the Vegas model from a couple years ago where, hey, everyone's just going to be really fast and we're going to fly around and that's going to cause all kinds of problems for you. That's what Montreal did in this. And even the, the veteran line with, with Stahl, uh, Armia, and Corey Perry... Not the most fleet of foot, those boys, anymore, but they they understand what they are doing on the forecheck, and they understand how to effectively use the skills that they have to create opportunities, and I thought they were tremendous last night, creating some chances. Corey Perry has a good one in tight. The puck just kind of slides off of his stick. Doesn't count as a shot attempt. We could go into that one, but why? But Montreal, I think you can come away from this one saying, hey, we can beat these guys. You also can come away from this saying, hey, we should have beat these guys. But I thought the speed that Montreal played with, the pressure they were able to put on Vegas just forced so many turnovers for Vegas and just created so many opportunities for Montreal that it just, it really felt like Vegas was shell-shocked by this. And it just felt like the whole game, they were just hanging on. And I, I think that this is also a series on the other end of the spectrum, you are seeing Montreal's defense shining. And at the beginning of the year, granted different platform, but I was saying Montreal's defense was the best in the North Division. And now they are showing they might have been one of the best in the National Hockey League. Because while Vegas has some flaws when it comes to this time of year and putting that puck in that net, this is still a remarkably skilled hockey team with Stone, Pacioretty, Carlson, Martin, like on and on down the line. And they have done superbly well at shutting all of that down. They have done a fantastic job. When Vegas does get into the zone, there are very few times in that game last night, except for in the third period when Vegas is pushing, and that's just an understandable aspect of the game. But for about 55 minutes of that game, how many times was Montreal just hemmed in their zone? How many times would the announcer um, have said they're under siege? Like, it just, it was none. Even when Vegas got some control, started to at least tip the scales to neutral, Montreal still did a great job of keeping things away from danger areas and making sure that they weren't spending one, two, three full shifts in the offensive zone. When you have the best goalie on the planet and you are providing him with that kind of defensive structure, we've seen it work this whole playoff, and it's it's working again. And Montreal, when you go back and look at who they've been able to shut down, 
throughout this uh, Stanley Cup run, even if they don't make it to the Cup final. But just the work that they have done on Stone and Pacioretty in this series, the work they did on Matthews and Marner in the back half of that series. Uh, I understand they didn't really have to deal with Shifley all that much, um, but the the work that they did against a, a pretty skilled Winnipeg team as well. This defensive group, I think, deserves a whole lot of credit. This isn't just Carey Price standing on his head. And if this team goes all the way, he is going to win the Conn Smythe Trophy. But that blue line deserves all different kinds of credit for the work that they have done. From a Vegas perspective, you love these. You didn't play your best game. You still come away with a win. And again, they have not played particularly well this entire series. And would you look at that? Series is tied to, and like I said before... They don't even have to win another road game to take this series. I still think that they should feel concerned because they haven't really had their A game up until this point. And like Pacioretty is shooting fine. Uh, Stone, God, he's good. But it's still been a little quiet from him. And they are now in that spot where they're missing the net by a ton. And you can see Carey Price is definitely in their heads. And now look at, the goals that they created last night, and maybe you at least have teachable moments from a Vegas perspective that say, hey, dummies, you're really fucking good at this thing. Let's try to just, you know, use those to our advantage. Not going to score if you miss the net. I think Wayne Gretzky said something about that. I'm paraphrasing. It wasn't actually that quote, but you know what I mean. The two goals that Vegas scores. It is a pass from behind the net. McNabb is pinching, and he just puts a quick shot on goal, and it goes in. There wasn't anything spectacular about it. it. You pass, I shoot, I score. That's that. That is how that goal worked. And then the 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 Wah rebound goal. It's a, put a puck on net. There is a scramble opportunity. Wah with the patience and touch that very few human beings in that situation would be able to come up with, and he is able to do that and sends Vegas home happy. Not particularly spectacular goals when you look at them. It is just put a puck on net, create havoc. And there is an opportunity here. Also, just a quick aside, Vegas looking like the the Stormtrooper guys from Star Wars where they can't hit a damn thing. The shots are going all over the place. And then that moment of clarity and that moment of touch where like this is up until this point, probably one of the biggest moments of young Mr. Waugh's hockey career. I think everyone would have understood if he would that, that that was screaming, I, oh, he just missed. But, well, he's under a lot of pressure, you're panicking. But to have the composure to just boop that into the net, fantastic stuff. And just a, a level of calm, I will never be able to understand. I wouldn't be able to do that in a rec ball hockey game, to have that kind of patience and that kind of composure. So to have that in game four of a must-win situation in Montreal, absolutely hats off to you, kind sir. The talking point going into this was Robin Lehner was named the starting goalie for Marc-Andre Fleury. And this is one of those situations where a couple of things can be true. One thing that can be true is probably not the best decision to pull Marc-Andre Fleury in that situation. He gives up a bad uh, a bad turnover that leads to this series potentially being completely turned upside down. Like there are, you play that game that way eight or uh, ten times, eight of them Montreal is winning. But Vegas comes away with the win, and like I said, the series is tied 2-2, but there is definitely a world where this thing has just got away from Vegas. And the main turning point of that is Marc-Andre Fleury with what we'll call maybe his second worst puck handling mistake uh, of his career. Uh, the first one, of course, going back to his junior days. But I, I, I still think that that is way too rash of a reaction. But it is a reaction you can make when you have Robin Lehner. And this is a guy that you have trusted all season long, I, I think you can criticize the decision to pull Marc-Andre Fleury without having to trash the other dude. And I get he hasn't played a ton in the last month and a half. And at times he hasn't played particularly well when he has played. But this is still a very good goalie. And I, I think that you can make the point that Marc-Andre Fleury shouldn't have been pulled without saying, yeah, because you have this bum. It's like, well, you have a pretty good goalie in Robert Lehner. And he showed that again. And... I just, I thought there was an overreaction and an overstating to, you're going to put that guy in net? You can do the, you're going to pull that guy, but you don't have to do the, you're going to put that guy in because that guy was really, really good for a long, or has been really, really good for a few years now. 
And I, I just, I thought it was crazy. The overreacting that was going on to putting Robin Lehner in goal. I, I wouldn't have made that decision, but it's not because I think Robin Lehner sucks. It's because I think Marc-Andre Fleury has been really, really good all season long and probably deserved an opportunity to try to make up for a really, really bad mistake that he made in game three of this series. But now the series is tied at two. And from a Vegas perspective, you just go with Mar- with Robin Lehner until it doesn't work. We haven't really seen a goalie tandem win a Stanley Cup, but we also haven't really seen a whole lot of goalie tandems in history that are Robin Lehner and Marc-Andre Fleury. This series is going to be endlessly fascinating. I still think if Vegas finds whatever they are missing right now, they can pull away and win this series. But I am very much also of the belief that what Vegas is missing right now it's not that they can't find it. It's that Montreal has hid it from them. And I, I think this series, it, it is so much more entertaining than I thought it was going to be. And I, I thought going in, like, okay, Vegas is going to stomp these guys and we better be getting Vegas against Tampa Bay because that is the only only combination in this whole thing that I'm interested in. Montreal has worked their way into making me be interested in them. And I think the Islanders have done the same thing. Like, I... There is a, a, I don't want to say stigma because that is way too serious for talking about a fucking hockey team, but that there is this mental block with me that I I just can't get over that the Islanders have a ceiling to them. And if they, if they were to make the Stanley Cup final, it would just, I would still watch because it's the Stanley Cup final, but there would be a bit of a, huh, to it. But then you watch them play, and man, they're fun to watch. Like, they're just, they are relentless. And Beauvillier has turned into one of my favorite players to watch. And then, I mean, Eberle has tons of skill. And, like, they have, just up and down the lineup, they have a lot of guys that are just really, really fun. And they have the work ethic that you have come to appreciate from hockey teams over the last little while. That's not to say other teams don't, but it's just, it is truly a hallmark of this team. And they just do not let up. If, that, that like, that Pittsburgh series... I can understand how Pittsburgh got overwhelmed in that because it's just, it is nonstop. You get a goal, they come right back and they are just absolutely relentless. And if you finally get a chance to breathe with a two goal lead, if you exhale, they are scoring on you. Like it, it is just a constant pressure for 60 minutes. So I have officially come around to the the thought that I would be okay with any of these teams advancing to the Stanley Cup. And I know that there have been some talks about, well, is what the Islanders doing bad for hockey? No. No, it's not. You could put Vegas against Tampa Bay on there, and that would be the most exciting hockey ever in terms of moving the needle. I don't know how much that is going to do. I don't think at this point, whatever team makes it into the Stanley Cup final, that you're going to have this renaissance of hockey and it's going to come back. Like hockey, I think hockey is doing as well as hockey can do right now. We've talked about before, how do you get hockey to the next level? It's not, oh, well, you have two of the high-flying teams and boy, would it be exciting. Maybe that helps a little bit. You have to get people involved in these teams. You have to get people involved in these players. And and I think to have the coverage around the Islanders centering around, is this bad for hockey? You're missing the point. I think you need to explain why this is one of the like quintessential hockey things to happen and why it makes this sport so much different than some of the other ones we're going to talk about today. The music that you hear on Couch Potato Diary is provided by Wasted Talent. Check out their new song, Drowning, out now, and follow their producer, Tommy Fresh, on Instagram, at Tommy Fresh Music. So, basketball happened. Um, the NBA playoffs are officially drunk, and we are, regardless of who is going to win the championship, we're going to get a team that hasn't won a title in at least 50 years winning the NBA championship. And with most of them, we're going to get a team that's never won a championship winning the NBA championship. We are down to the final four, and we are now at the realization that one of the Bucks, Hawks, Suns, and Clippers are going to win an NBA title this year. And all of that is just to scream at some of the other teams, what the fuck were you doing? And we will start that screaming with the Philadelphia 76ers. And uh, pardon all the language, but my first note on the Philadelphia 76ers here is just, holy shit, Philly. Because this series was all the way there for them. You have an Atlanta Hawks team that 
while we are seeing quite good, led by a player that we are seeing really good. This was still there for Philadelphia. And I said coming in that everything was stacked up in Philadelphia's favor. And now you're in a very tough spot. And we'll get to that one um, in a little bit and kind of the, the severity of this collapse. But the big story coming out of this is Ben Simmons and what has happened to him. And a couple of people getting at me on Twitter and the, the name Chuck Knobloch came up. And that is the perfect description of this scenario. For those of you who are unaware, back in the early 2000s, well, in the 90s, Chuck Knobloch was an all-star second baseman for the Minnesota Twins. And the New York Yankees did what the New York Yankees do, and that is plucked an all-star second baseman from a team that doesn't necessarily have the financial resources to keep that guy around. And for the first couple of years, Chuck Knobloch was fine. And then all of a sudden, that throw from second base to first base became the hardest thing Chuck Knobloch has ever had to do in his existence. And it wasn't close ever. Like just so many throws all over the place. And it was, even as someone who enjoys Yankee futility, it was tough to watch because this guy who's been doing this thing perfectly for his entire life, not even just his adult life, but since he was like four, all of a sudden just couldn't do it anymore. And it, it was crazy to watch that this high level athlete essentially have a mental meltdown every time he's placed in the easiest of situations and it ends up affecting his play at the plate as well and on and on and on that same thing happened to ben simmons and ben simmons is of a higher star caliber than chuck knobloch i said on twitter this is the first time i can remember watching a star player lose star player status in the span of seven games. Like we have just, we have never seen someone's star ability just get drained out of them. Like you're playing Super Mario and you have that star thing and the music gets really fast paced for a while and then just stops all of a sudden. That is what's happened to Ben Simmons. That That is the best way I can describe what's happened to Ben Simmons because we've always known he can't shoot, but he does other things on the floor really, really well that makes him an effective point guard. And we'll get into that conversation again, but he, like he is an all-star, he is paid rather handsomely to do the things that he does. And there were some people thinking he could be someone who kind of is a next step in the evolution of the point guard. The problem is, can't shoot worth a lick. And those problems were exacerbated in these playoffs. He was shooting abysmally from the free throw line. That meant he didn't want to do basically anything on offense so that he wouldn't get to the free throw line. And Homie took like eight shots in four or in seven fourth quarters in this series. Made them all, so good for you. But it was just, it was almost tough to watch this 20, I think 24 year old superstar turn into barely a role player in the span of a couple of weeks. Like, I, I just, I, I cannot think of another time like it. Like, Chuck Knobloch is the, the best comparison I can think of, and his star level isn't close to where Ben Simmons was or was supposed to get to. And so now, Philadelphia's in a tough spot because everything in Philadelphia is geared around Joel Embiid, who is a dominant post player who can go to the outside, but was forced to go to the outside a little bit more because Ben Simmons can't do anything from further than 12 feet away from the basket. That's just, that. that is not an efficiently run team. And a lot of the turnovers that Embiid had last night, including a crucial one late, is because you're asking a seven foot tall monster to try to create like he's Allen Iverson late in games. And while he is better at it than every seven footer ever, aside from, I guess Kevin Durant's technically seven feet tall. He, you know what I mean? Every center except for Nikolai Jokic, basically, and Hakeem Olajuwon. But we're going way, way back now. Essentially, we're asking him to do something that no one else his size should be able to do. And the fact that he comes close to being able to do it is phenomenal. But to have that be your, like, out of timeout, we're down by three, we need Joel Embiid to create for us? No! No, you, that, that, that just, that is not a way to win a championship for the Philadelphia 76ers, but he can't do his thing down low because that's where Simmons needs to go because he can't shoot at all. So it is clear and obvious that this is not a good fit. And while Ben Simmons on another team might turn into something pretty good still, with this team, it is not the way to go to anything successful for Philadelphia. So everyone is now saying that Ben Simmons needed to be traded. And again, for the reasons I just laid out, I do believe that that is obvious. 
The problem is, you know who else knows Philadelphia needs to trade Ben Simmons? Everybody. Every team in the league now knows that that is a problem. And the postgame comments do not help. Um, hey, Doc Rivers, coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. Do you believe Ben Simmons is a championship-level uh, point guard? I do not know. Hey, Joel Embiid, where did this game turn? Well, you know, the momentum shifted where, well, I don't know how to say this, but we had a wide-open layup, and it turned into one made free throw. And that was just the signal to everyone that this kid's completely lost it. And I don't want to make it sound like I am taking joy in, in him losing it. It is tough to watch. And we, we have talked about mental health issues in professional sports, and now it is staring us right in the face because this kid's obviously lost something, whether it be confidence or there's something else going on. Um, but like he is obviously rattled from the, this whole entire experience. And so I don't want to lose sight of that. But from a basketball standpoint, what is Philadelphia going to get now? Like a few months ago, we thought James Harden was going to be traded for Ben Simmons. And that seemed a pretty fair, but also from a Philadelphia standpoint, I was thinking, I don't know if I would do that. And now all of a sudden it's, Hey, could you get CJ McCollum plus? Oh, not plus, just CJ McCollum. So second best player on a team that was just eliminated in the first round. Super. But that's the spot that Philadelphia is in right now. So this is an extremely tricky offseason when you have a team that is, A, so obviously close to championship level, but B, has such an obvious flaw and an obvious chemistry clash that you need to make a change, but everyone knows you can. And so there is no way you're going to get more than 50 cents on the dollar for someone who we thought you were building your team around. It, it is wild to think about this, but it also kind of shows why Philadelphia should have traded for Kyle Lowry. And I'm not just saying this because I am a Raptors fan and would have loved the best possible return for the greatest Raptor in the history of the franchise. Um, and I'm not just saying this because there is a Kyle Lowry ba uh, bias coming from behind this microphone. Admittedly, both of those are true, but your window to win a championship is very, very small. We've talked about this in the past. The, the Boston Celtics pulled off a remarkable trade that set them up in the f 10 years in the future. And it isn't even done. We, we went through that trade tree a couple of weeks ago. And the best they've done is conference finals, which is pretty good. But no one believed they had a chance in any of those conference finals. And now they're at a point where they are attaching first round picks to high level free agents that they have signed to get them out of there, which is not a good sign for how things are going for your team. And now for Philadelphia, you are in this spot and you just look around and see how Kyle Lowry would have been a perfect fit for this Philadelphia team. And defensively, you lose a ton with Kyle Lowry out there instead of Ben Simmons. And I'm not saying trade Ben Simmons for Kyle Lowry. And anyone who suggests that is a moron because Kyle Lowry is a free agent. And yeah, you can do a sign and trade. That ain't the sign and trade that's going to happen. But you, you look at what Kyle Lowry does well and how he would have been able to kind of dictate their offense late. He would have been a perfect fit for him. And I understand Ben Simmons is a point guard and Kyle Lowry is a point guard. Ben Simmons is not a point guard. I, I forget who the Philadelphia blogger was, but he was on the Low Post podcast. And he said... Saying Ben Simmons is a point guard because he does all these extraordinary things that no other point guard does, that's, that's fine, except he doesn't do any of the things that a point guard actually does. That'd be like me saying Alex Ovechkin is a revolutionary goalie in the National Hockey League because look, he scores 50 goals a year. What goalie? No goalie has ever scored more than two goals in a season ever in the NHL. So look at that scoring production you are getting from the goalie spot. Well, yeah, but can he play goalie? He has his flaws as a goaltender in that he doesn't stop the puck at all. But aside from that, look at all these great things that he does that no other goalie has ever done. That, that is a way to sell something to an idiot, maybe. But the more you watch this, the more it's like Ben Simmons is point guard in title only. And it is, it is excellent that Ben Simmons can handle the ball as well as he can for someone as huge as he is. And it's excellent that because of his quickness, he can defend pretty well every position on the floor. That doesn't mean he's a point guard, though. Like, if, if you want to have him, if you are playing the Golden State Warriors and you want to have Ben Simmons guard Steph Curry, be my guest. Have Kyle Lowry bring the ball up the floor, though. I feel like 
it's still a tough fit, even if you bring in Kyle Lowry, because you have Simmons, whose game is so, so, so just connected to the rim, and he's basically tethered to the, the backboard. And you have Embiid, whose best work can come down there. It is still a tough fit, but I at least think with Kyle Lowry, this 76ers team, the way every, if if you get Kyle Lowry and everything else in the NBA stays the same and there's no weird butterfly effect off of this, this Philadelphia 76ers team is winning an NBA championship right now. Your window for a championship is so small, you need to do everything you can. When you have a legitimate championship window and teams have made mistakes thinking they have that when they don't actually and trying to go all in and it ends up costing them. And so I'm not saying this is a plan without any flaws, but you have one of the best players on the planet on your team and you have now yet to get to the second round and you sucked for a long time to build this thing up. Now that you have this opportunity for a championship, I think just because the Raptors asking price was a little bit high, you didn't go for it. I think that is a major mistake. And I think it is one that cost Philadelphia a championship and anyone saying, well, yeah, Simmons struggled, but what about, I don't have time for that. I, I, I understand basketball is a team sport and it takes, if you point one finger, then there's four pointing back at you. I cannot stress this enough. They lost this series because of Ben Simmons. That this is maybe Doc Rivers made some coaching errors at some point along the way. And yeah, like Tobias Harris could have made a couple extra shots down the stretch. And maybe defensively, a couple of things could have changed. But if Ben Simmons does almost anything, they win this series. Like it was right there. You have a couple of epic collapses in the middle of this series. If you limit that to one, this series is yours. And so no one's asking Ben Simmons in this series to take over a game. I'm sure Embiid would have enjoyed it, but no one's asking him to be Jimmy Butler and just take this game over and take things over. It's just make two shots in the fourth quarter and you win a couple of those games and we're not having this conversation. You just needed to contribute a little bit, but he just couldn't even do that. And that is why I think his time in Philadelphia probably does need to come to an end. And the heartbreaking thing for Philly, and we've just talked about my basketball fandom, I shed no tears for the Philadelphia 76ers. But from a Philly standpoint, I said this as the playoffs were starting. Everything stacked up in Philadelphia's favor so perfectly at the beginning of the postseason. And that was before... 66% of the good players on the Brooklyn Nets got hurt. Like, th this is an absolutely terrible collapse where the path to a title is so clear for them. You don't have to play the big three in Brooklyn. LeBron, on the other side, is already gone. Two of the four best players in the Western Conference Finals either have COVID or are hurt. This whole thing stacked up. You're playing an Atlanta team. This is their first time in the playoffs with this group. We are seeing the first playoff games of Trey Young. And you have, like, a team that is built to stop him with Ben Simmons and with Thibel that you can throw at Trey Young. In theory, this shouldn't have been an issue at all. This is one of the more epic collapses that you will see and one that I think Philadelphia fans are going to be hurting from for a long time. On the other end of this, cannot stress enough how impressed I am with the Atlanta Hawks and specifically with Trey Young. And he was everything that you kind of need a Ben Simmons to be. Now, that was a bit of a shot because they are two entirely different players. And defensively, he has a weakness, although Philadelphia didn't take advantage of that. And that's the Doc Rivers stuff that I was talking about. But Trey Young, we think of him as a skilled scorer and a skilled shooter. Trey Young in game seven, the biggest basketball game of his life up until this point was five for 23 from the field. That, ladies and gentlemen, sucks. But he was so good at creating for everyone else around him that you just didn't know it. And then late when they need him to make some shots, he makes some big shots. So it kind of masks the fact that up until that point, it was kind of ugly. But again, you don't notice how bad the shooting is because A, you respect that he's a good shooter and just has to take a few anyway. But also he was creating things for so many other guys, getting into the lane, opening up opportunities and just his vision to pass when the double teams come. Um, he just sees the game at a bit of a higher level as a playmaker. And... I just, I cannot say enough how impressed I was at Trey Young. And I was not a big Trey Young fan, basically up until this series. But he, he has really convinced me that there is more to him than just a guy who likes to shoot it from deep a thousand times. And eventually some of them will go in and look at that. I got 35 points on 38 shots. He is someone who can actually create for his teammates. And while that 
trade for Luka Doncic or trading away Luka Doncic, I don't think is ever going to be a good trade for Atlanta. It has at least set up the Hawks in a very good spot where it is now a win-win um, instead of a, hey, we really kicked the Mavs ass on that one because you could have had Luka, but this guy creates so well. 40% field goals, uh, 32% from three in this series. Wasn't amazing, but it was his playmaking, and it was the way he made everyone else around him better, and it's okay, I'm not doing the scoring thing, I'm going to do other things to help get my team to the NBA semifinals. And that was the stuff that Ben Simmons wasn't doing. It was, okay, I'm not scoring, I'm not playing very well offensively, so I'm just going to shut down and not do anything. Trey Young went the exact opposite way, and that's why the Hawks are going the exact opposite way of the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, Bucks versus Nets on Saturday, Game 7, one of the craziest Game 7s you will ever see. And once again, a reminder that Kevin Durant is still really, really good at this thing. And just a couple unbelievable performances, and literally half a shoe size away from sending his team to the conference finals, basically on his own. And one of the things I take away from this is that I wish he hadn't done the super team thing these last couple of times because it kind of takes away from the appreciation that we have for Kevin Durant because you see him with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, and it's just unfair. Like you're not going to beat those teams. And for the most part, no one did until a couple of guys got hurt and destiny came in in the name of the Toronto Raptors. But like you just see how stupid the skill level was on that team. And it just, it almost didn't seem fair. And now you have him out there with Harden and Kyrie. And once again, it just almost doesn't seem fair. But it is a reminder that while he has been on a couple of super teams, he's been the best player on all of those super teams. And I am not forgetting Steph Curry. And I'm not forgetting Harden or Kyrie or Clay Thompson. This guy's been the best player on all of those teams. And I, I do think this team is going to be very, very good next season. And I think having a full, a full off season and a full season to figure out how to use these guys to the peak of their abilities and to build a full team around them instead of building a full team around a couple of them and then piecing things together later. I, like, this Nets team is going to be a real force to contend with, and we'll see how teams adjust going into next year. It, it kind of sucks for the Nets, and you never just want to say, well, they'll be back, because we saw that with the Kevin Durant team with Oklahoma City when they got shit-kicked by Miami. It's, well, they're a young team. They'll be back to an NBA Finals. I mean, they have 36 draft picks in the next seven years, but they, they haven't been back to an NBA Finals since. You never just want to say, ah, they'll be back, because that's not how sports works, but th this is a Brooklyn Nets team that is, th this is just the beginning instead of the end. And for that reason, the Milwaukee Bucks needed this one a little bit more, because if Kevin Durant's foot is behind the line on that three-point shot, we are talking about Rick Carlisle coaching the Bucks today, and these Ben Simmons conversations, we're having a scaled-down version of them when talking about Giannis. But instead, once again, not to take anything away from the Hawks, but it kind of feels like things are set up pretty well for the Milwaukee Bucks to win an NBA title now. They are the betting favorites as of this morning, and... When you look at, again, what you can throw at Trey Young to try to defend him, Drew Holiday almost feels tailor-made to do that. So I, I like the Bucks pretty big in this series, but I, I don't think I've picked Atlanta yet. So I might just be off on them. So a, a desperately needed win for the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, quickly out West, we're already one game in with Clippers against the Suns. Devin Booker's phenomenal. Paul George is making a bit of a, uh, I don't want to say career resurgence because he's been pretty good the whole time, but he is certainly doing a lot to repair his reputation as a basketball player over the last little bit. I, I think one of the bigger takeaways for me, though, is when you look at the teams that those teams beat, specifically the Utah Jazz, who end up falling to the, the LA Clippers, and Rudy Gobert, one of the better defensive big men, or the best defensive big man in the NBA right now, one of the better defensive players overall in the NBA, hence Defensive Player of the Year honors. He was useless in that game against the LA Clippers. And now the the narrative around Rudy Gobert is, well, can you win with this guy? Like, look, teams can just go small and just absolutely, absolutely annihilate him. You just can't have a guy like, uh, like Rudy Gobert out there. When a year ago it was... Well, geez, look at all the size in the West. Like you have LeBron and AD, and you you have Nikola Jokic. Like you can't you can't just be small anymore. This is the return of the big man. And even 
as early as the play-in round with Jonas Valanciunas just absolutely dominating fools, it was, well, there's no way, like, you need you need this big guy. And now one series doesn't go his way, and oh, well, have to get rid of the big guys. Just a bunch of guys who are 6'7", running around there. That's the way to win in this, this new era of the NBA. And it is just such a blatant reminder. There is no one-size-fits-all in the National Basketball Association. We think there is because it's just star players winning all the time, but you still have to have the right fit and you still have to have the right mix. It's not just get as many star players as you can and championships. Otherwise, LeBron and the, the Heatles would have been 4-0 instead of 2-2 two and two in NBA Finals. Getting star players is clearly the best way to success in the NBA, but there is a reason that the Clippers' first year did not go as well as the Raptors' first year with Kawhi, and that is because of the teams around them. And it would be phenomenal if you could build a team that just fits to every different style. And that was one of the ways that Golden State was able to beat teams, is that they can go small and just kill you with the the death lineup. But also, if you go big, well, Draymond Green is one of the better defensive big men in the history of the NBA, so we we can handle that too. They were built almost perfectly for that. Very few teams are able to get to that, though. And sometimes you just run into a team that is a bad matchup for you or whatever, but to just suggest, well, this is the way you win in the NBA, it's just lazy, and it's not the way things work now. A couple of... Um, I, I just want to do a, a quick thing on the, the the story of the month in Major League Baseball with the sticky stuff that has been placed on the baseballs and it's become an issue. And Tyler Glass now is now saying that it's, you know, the reason his elbow exploded is because he's not allowed to have sticky stuff. (sighs) It's exhausting and it's dumb. Um, Just don't like it's, it's blatant cheating and to say, Oh, well, they came out with this middle of the season. No, 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 no. You've never been able to do this in the history of the sport. It's not been allowed. To, to be able to do spitting on your hand and grabbing the baseball has barely been allowed. So genetically engineered stickum to help spin the ball a little bit easier. Sorry. No, there have been elbow issues far before Tyler glass. Now there are going to be elbow issues far beyond Tyler glass. Now, right now, it's not because you weren't allowed to have the sticky stuff. And if it is, you weren't as good as you thought you were anyway. Like that, that's just that, that is where we're at. Quite frankly, I have more of a problem with the sticky stuff than I did with steroids back in the the late 90s for a few reasons. One, and this is not a good argument for or against anything either, one made the sport more fun and the other has just sucked the life out of it. So, which one am I going to go to? The one that created more home runs? Like, back when McGuire and Sosa were doing their thing, the commercials were, chicks dig the long ball. We're not going now with, hey, you know what chicks really dig? Spin rate, bro. Your spin rate's not in the, the 2300s. Don't even bother talking to her. Go home alone. That's not what we're doing. No, you're not seeing those commercials. A, that was poorly written. But B, no one's coming to a baseball game. As much as some of us baseball nerds can appreciate it, no one's coming to a baseball game because homie throws a six slider. Like, you can have good pitching. And I will base a lot of my TV watching in baseball around good pitching matchups but that's because the pitchers were good just on their own instead of doctoring the baseball so they can make it spin a little bit better. Like with the home run debate and the, the steroid issue, you still had to hit the ball, right? Like, And, and that is still a, a level of hand-eye coordination that 99.99% of this planet will never be able to achieve even to the point of fouling something off. So to you, you still have to hit the ball and still have to make it go a long way. And also, I can take steroids... I'm not going to hit 50 home runs. You still have to work out with those steroids. Now, admittedly, they help out a lot. And I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is with the sticky stuff, you can make an average pitcher almost unhittable with some of the breaking balls that these guys are throwing. And to their credit, they still have to get their arm speed and their arm strength up to a point where they can throw fast enough that some of that shit becomes unhittable. Like, I can't, even with sticky stuff, I'm not throwing 90 miles an hour. But I would like to think with sticky stuff and proper education, I can make a slider look like a wiffle ball pretty easily. Not pretty easily. That would be overstating it. But I could at least do it. The, the steroids were 
turning these already highly tuned athletes into superhumans. But they still had to do it themselves. And the the spin rate stuff, like, it, it just feels like an extra level of cheating. And maybe that this is not the hill to die. Well, it's definitely not the hill to die on. Very few hills to die on. Or, hey, you know what's awesome? Drugs. But it, it just feels like such an unfair advantage where you are bringing in a foreign substance to help you out with that. It, it's probably to a lot of people... Six of one, half, into a dozen, uh, half a dozen to another. But it, it's just, it's so frustrating. And the reaction to it has been so annoying. Well, how, how could you possibly be changing this now? You mean enforcing this rule that you've known has been a rule forever? I just, I don't, I like to think I understand both sides of a lot of debates. I don't see both sides of this one. On that note, we're going to close today's show with the NCAA situation. As news came down today, uh, reading this from one of the news outlets, I think NBC was this one who tweeted this, breaking, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously rules that the NCAA went too far in blocking some educated-related aid for student-athletes, a decision that comes as college athletics struggles with the issue of how to preserve its amateur status. The U.S. Supreme Court says the NCAA viled, uh, violated antitrust laws when it limited the amount students could receive for musical instruments, scientific equipment, postgraduate scholarships, tutoring, academic awards, and paid internships. The paid internships one, you can squint and see how that might be a bit of a recruiting issue where, hey, if you come here and you're not a great football player, we'll get you a paid internship at Google and off we go. But the science equipment? Like you think, a five-star offensive lineman is going to go to Harvard instead of Alabama or Clemson because they gave him a couple of extra Bunsen burners? Get all the way the fuck out of here. The NCAA is running out of legs to stand on when it comes to the, the paying players thing. If you want to say that the payment of these athletes in a full ride to such prestigious academic institutions as Alabama and Oklahoma is enough payment for the sacrifices and the, the, the physical abilities of the students, uh, of these students that are brought in millions upon billions of dollars to these academic institutions. If you think that full ride is enough of a payment, then A, that's bullshit. But B, okay, I will at least listen to your argument before I say it's bullshit. However, if you're going to say that one, you can't then say, well, we're also going to limit the amount of, you know, scientific equipment and musical instruments and shit that you can get for doing all this stuff. So to recap, you're going to go sacrifice your body for the enjoyment of millions of people around the world and for billions of dollars to this athletic institution. We're not going to pay you because you're a student and getting a ride through college is enough. However, we're also not going to help you out with some of the equipment or some of the tutoring that you might need when you're doing what is essentially a professional athlete schedule on a week-to-week -week basis and still doing fucking finals while you're playing in the NCAA Final Four? Because that would be immoral? Like, it's just, it's crazy to even say. And the name and likeness stuff is a good start, although some states are being ridiculous with it where... Uh, a high-end player, I think Georgia and Florida are the ones who are doing this, a high-end player can go out and make all the money that they want, but that goes into a pool and gets spread out over all of the players in a state so that the quarterback for Georgia can go be on Madden and a bunch of people can go buy his jersey and he gets money for that, but he makes the same as the kicker who's doing a sponsorship for Bucks, Subaru, and Video Rental. They get the same? Ridiculous. But... Beggars can't be choosers in this spot, although it's ridiculous that one side is the beggars in this. I, I just, I can't see the arguments against paying players anymore. The big one that gets thrown out is it could potentially throw off the competitive balance because these big schools have just so much more money that they could spend than some of the smaller guys, like the Boise States. And I mean, what would this academic institution and this sporting event be without such phenomenal stories like Boise State making that run to, I think it was the Fiesta Bowl with the Statue of Liberty play, and then Chris Myers ruining a, a proposal on the field after the game. How could you handle not having stories like that? 
if you allowed these teams to just freely spend money on players, then you would just have the big schools prospering and you would have the end of the little ones. So with that, we go to the teams that have made the college football playoff since it was instituted in 2014-15. That first year, Alabama, Oregon, Florida State, Ohio State. The second year, Clemson, Alabama, Michigan State, Oklahoma. The third year, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Washington. Welcome to the party, Washington. 17-18, Clemson, Oklahoma, Alabama, Georgia. 18-19, Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, Oklahoma. 1920, LSU, Ohio State, Clemson, Oklahoma. 2021, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Notre Dame. Any of those sound like the little guy to you. Any of that sound like anything other than the big schools are kind of dominating this thing. It is one thing to say, well, you, you would mess with the competitive integrity. Fine, you're messing it with it yourselves. And also, if you could say, well, I mean, th this could provide an unfair advantage for people recruiting some of these young players. Let's look at the top recruiting classes in the last three years, shall we? 2019, the top 10. Alabama, Georgia, Texas, Texas A&M, LSU, Oklahoma, Oregon, Michigan, Florida, Clemson. 2020, Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, LSU, Ohio State, Texas A&M, Auburn, Texas, Florida, Tennessee. 2021, Alabama, Ohio State, LSU, Georgia, Clemson, Oregon, USC, Texas A&M, Notre Dame, and Oklahoma. Did you notice a variety in there? Because I missed it. It's basically the same teams every year with a couple Tennessees and Washingtons popping their heads in like, hey, remember us? The NCAA is already ridiculously top-heavy. So to suggest that it would now become top-heavy if teams could play players, I just don't see it. If you think you're keeping up the integrity of the sport, you're doing a shitty job of it and paying the players isn't going to affect things. And also, it's happening now. Just have it be on the up-and-up so that you can actually regulate these things instead of just having all these teams have to go through the extra effort of trying to hide it under the table. If you want, if you really want competitive balance, actually, again, it goes back to the baseball thing, actually enforce your fucking rules, and then maybe you won't have these types of things instead of whatever the fuck the NCAA is doing right now. The other, the other argument is, well, there just isn't enough player uh, money to pay all these players. Like, yes, College football brings a lot of money into these academic institutions, but that helps pay for some of the sports that don't make a lot of money. And that helps pay for some upgrades to the school and stuff, which, first of all, fuck off. Second of all, the one of the things they were arguing against was the, the name and likeness thing. There is, I, I don't know what school they go to, but there is a gymnast in college, who has a million Instagram followers, who can't make a fucking dime off of that because they are an amateur. And it is one thing when these football players for four years can't make money off of their likeness, but then some of them get to go to the professionals where they make millions of dollars. I don't know if you've noticed, those opportunities don't exactly present themselves for gymnasts. So that's one. But the other one, this whole there's no money thing has been proven wrong so many times. In 2019, Athletic Director U, uh, a really good research website, powered by uh, the Collegiate Sports Association, Executive Search and Consulting, they did a study on how much money these colleges were spending. They found that Power 5, so for, for those who aren't necessarily familiar with the college um, system, there are five power conferences that kind of run things like all, all of those schools that I listed, um, all go to, or are all in power five conferences. Those conferences would be the sec, the Southeast conference, the PAC 12, that one's pretty explanatory. Uh, the big 12, the ACC, the Atlantic coast conference and the big 10. So schools in those five conferences, this study found that power five college football and basketball teams spent $491 million on severance coaches they let go over a 15-year period. That came out to an average per year, per team, of three quarters of a million dollars just on coaches to not coach there anymore. You can't have an insane amount of money flying all over the place and say there isn't enough to pay the players. That's like there being a downpour out there, putting an umbrella over my head and telling me it's not raining. Like, that—that that is just absolutely asinine. There, There is not one 
argument I will listen to anymore against paying these players. I'm not saying give them millions and millions and millions of dollars. If you want to do the minimum wage thing that was suggested in, in junior hockey, fine, go for it. If you just want the, the name and likeness thing, if you do it fairly, that works as well. But something clearly needs to be done. And I, the NCAA is in the top three for most corrupt organizations in sports and probably top five for corrupt organizations on planet the world. But I don't want this to be a death to NCAA thing because there there is still such amazing college atmospheres and amazing college events. I would love to go to a college football game somewhere. And I understand that is then me giving probably a lot of money to these financial institutions for them to not pay the players. And it's really, it, it's really frustrating because I, I want de death to the NCAA, but also uh, don't take away Saturday night at Tuscaloosa against Auburn and, and don't take away big games at the big house. Like I want to still have that college atmosphere and the fun that is college football and college basketball and the NCAA tournament. I still want to have all those things. I just want to know that the players that I'm watching can go get sushi on a Friday night if they want to get sushi on a Friday night. And if, for whatever reason, they want to actually be students, that they have enough fucking beakers to be science students. The What was summed up perfectly, and I'm not going to say this a ton about Brent Kavanaugh, but I think he did sum this up perfectly in his statement about things today. Quote, to be sure, the NCAA and its member colleges maintain important traditions that have become part of the fabric of America. Game days in Tuscaloosa and South Bend, the pack gyms in stores in Durham, the women's and men's lacrosse championships on Memorial Day weekend, track and field meets in Eugene, the spring softball and baseball World Series in Oklahoma City and Omaha, the list goes on. But those traditions alone cannot justify the NCAA's decision to build a massive money-raising enterprise on the backs of student-athletes who are not fairly compensated. Nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing to not pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sports should be any different. The NCAA is not above the law. Perfectly said, and a perfect note to end this show on today. Thank you very much for downloading and listening today. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe wherever possible. The more you do that, the more people get a chance to listen to the show, and the more this show is able to grow, and the more fun stuff we are able to do. You can follow me Twitter and Instagram at PrimetimeKlein, twitch.tv slash PrimetimePK. The YouTube channel is going to be linked in the show notes. Just search Couch Potato Tire, uh, Diary. I am PrimetimeKlein1 on there. The more subscribers you get, A, it'll be easier to set up the link, and then again, the more stuff I'll be able to do. And if you have any thoughts on the show, send them my way on email, couchpotatodiary at yahoo.com. The music you're listening to right now is Wasted Talent. You can find them on Instagram at Wasted Talent with X's where the A's would be. Check out their producer, Tommy Fresh, on Instagram at Tommy Fresh Music. Uh, they have a new song, Drowning Out Now. It looks like they got some more new stuff coming out soon. That's going to be really exciting. If you haven't heard enough from me, General History Podcast, we had no idea. Myself and my wife do this every Wednesday morning. Might have a couple bonus episodes for you guys this week. Check us out on Instagram at We Had No Idea Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. I'll be back Wednesday. I'm out. <laughs>